Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to this episode of Everyday Nonviolence. I'm Ellery McCardle, and it's my pleasure to be your host today. I'll be speaking with Erica Thorne, who has deep roots in social justice movements, having devoted her career to, in her own words, a full range of nonprofits, organizers, and rabble-rousers. We'll learn about her current work with Training for Change and Surge TC, and her lifetime commitment to addressing issues around race, violence, and the environment. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to chat with you and happy belated birthday. I hope you had some time to celebrate. Thank you. Yes. I had a wonderful time with an old friend and her almost two-year-old daughter. So that was very special. So Erica, when you were in your early twenties, you decided to devote yourself to fighting injustice and inequality. Then in your early thirties, committed the rest of your life to fighting racism uh, as a white woman. So tell me how did these commitments come about? Right. Well, in my early 20s, I got, uh, I, I got connected to a group called Movement for a New Society. And they were, uh, were founded by Quakers. And they were a, a, nonviolent, uh, a network of nonviolent trainers and organizers. And uh, I think at our peak, about 10 cities in the United States. Tell me a little bit more about, about that, how you got involved there. Well, they were, uh, I had moved to Washington, D.C. from rural Iowa, big change. And uh, I, I, went, I went to Philadelphia where uh, Movement for New Society or MNS was founded. And uh, they had a, what they called an orientation weekend. And um, so we toured their group housing and uh, the, the, there's a neighborhood in West Philadelphia where um, there were probably at that peak at that time was something like 15 houses. And they uh, gave us an introduction to their facilitation techniques, a lot of which are now widespread, almost universal among progressives, and just showed me sort of a way that you could live radically. Mm -hmm. So then when you got into your 30s, was there one defining moment where you decided, okay, I'm really going to focus on racism and fighting that for the rest of my life? Mm, there definitely was. It was March, either March or May of uh, 1986. And um, so I was 32. And uh, I was uh, I was giving a dance concert at a conference that was uh, titled the Feminism and Nonviolence. And the conference had about uh, a third uh, women of color in it, um, thanks to the diligent work of the organizers of the conference. And so... I gave a dance concert, and one of my dances was racist. 
And you didn't know? I did not. I did not understand it at the beginning of the evening. I understood it by the end of the night. Uh, Then how did you learn that? Well, one of the organizers, one of the women of one of the participants, a, a woman of Korean descent, walked out in, in the in the middle of one of my dances in my concert. And um, Felicia Skell um, followed after her. And uh, then Felice came back at the end of the concert and said, well, uh, she walked out because of your dance, Karate Erotica. And um, so I was like, huh, wow. And typically for the period, uh, a number of the white women who, who adored my dancing, and there was a lot to adore about my dancing, said, oh, no, that wasn't racist and so forth. So we got into a white women's caucus and processed it and worked it. And I stayed up all night and I was realizing that I, that I couldn't be a, a revolutionary without having racism and white supremacy front and center. So I made a commitment with the witness of, of the women present in the caucus that I would fight racism as a white woman for the rest of my life. And I repeated that commitment the next morning as we reconvened with, reconvened with all the, everybody there. It sounds like that was a really big learning moment. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So I have kept that commitment, as I said, and, and will continue to keep it until my last days. So we know that you've worked for a number of organizations over the years, including FNVW, where you served as the managing director for several years. You're currently associated with Training for Change and Surge TC. So let's start with Surge. Tell me about what Surge is and, and what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, Surge stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. That is also a national network of white people organizing other white people to take the biggest bite out of white supremacy that we possibly can. I would say we have we have realized that white people need to be following the lead of activists of color, that we are not the ones who hold the wisdom of how to take that big bite out of white supremacy. We have a role and white supremacy is very, very good at what it does. My observation, my life experience, and my analysis is that White supremacy is working on white people from the get-go. In my case, I believe it was in the womb. So white supremacy does not mean people who uh, are in the Ku Klux Klan, or now these days are proud boys and boogaloo boys and oath keepers. All of those are white supremacists, but you don't have to belong to or ascribe to those ideas to be participating in and benefiting from the systemic, the system of white supremacy that is set up. So that's our, you know, in a nutshell, that's the analysis we're working on. And so because of all those things, and because of the magnificence of African-American culture, the resistance, the vision, the capacity to actualize individuals personally and, and movements and to simply survive, not simply, to actually survive everything that African-Americans have been through. They know a lot of things that I don't know and that I'm not ever going to be able to know in the full-bodied way that Black people do. So I can imagine people at this moment are saying, what? Wait a minute. For any number of reasons, they might be saying, what? Wait a minute. And so I just want to say here, for us white people, if we can talk less 
listen more, and be conscious of those little voices in our head that were shaped by white supremacy. For Surge, what that means in really concrete terms right now is that we have, we have accountability relationships, is what we call it, with three particular BIPOC-led organizations, Black Visions, the Association for Black Economic Power, or ABEP, and Voices for Racial Justice. When we uh, start an initiative or start to plan to join a campaign, we check in with our accountability partners and say, what do you think? Is this, is this, is what we have in mind something that you think will be useful? And so the best example right now is the campaign called Yes for Minneapolis. Yes for Minneapolis is the um, campaign to, we, we are going to have an amendment on the ballot on November 2nd for a Department of Public Safety. So we are now uh, supporting the campaign to get people to the polls on November 2nd and vote for the amendment. And this, I think, is interesting enough to, 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 to give the structure for. So Yes for Minneapolis is, is sponsoring, organizing right at this moment, is uh, beginning a process of conducting people's assemblies in majority black and brown neighborhoods in Minneapolis. This is about the Minneapolis city charter. So that's why it's Minneapolis focused. And uh, so these people's assemblies have one purpose, basically, are, well, they have a lot of purposes, actually, but the, the thing that's relevant to the resolution is starting to form the vision of what do Black and Brown and Indigenous people and Latinx people want public safety to look like? How would actual public safety look in the communities that have borne by far the majority of police violence? That's and a big question. I know. I know. And they're taking it on. It's, uh, you know, so it's tremendously um, visionary organizing. And so then what, uh, so I go to these coalition meetings every week and, and stuff. And so what surge showing up for racial justice, organizing white people, what we're doing is uh, doing a, a technique called deep canvassing, which you go door to door. We're, we're going door to door in majority white uh, neighborhoods. So we're going to go door to door in this deep, deep canvassing um, tool is not so much like, you know, when you knock on the door and I say, hey, you know, I'm working for this candidate, are you for him or against him? And uh, it's, uh, it's actually having a conversation. So we were practicing just on the phones a couple of weeks ago, and I had like a 25-minute conversation with uh, someone on the phone about the amendment and about public safety and about why this campaign is worthy of your support because we actually have a chance, possibly a once in a lifetime chance to actually do something about the endemic police violence in the Minneapolis police department. It's, I mean, you can't look at the, at these statistics and the information. Well, you could look at the statistics and say, ah, well, we just need a little reform, but many reforms, a whole series of reforms just in my time since 1978 here, have been have been tried, including body cameras. Body cameras were in effect in the horrific murder of Philando Castile and the sadistic police murder of George Floyd and dozens of others since body cameras came on. So uh, Black Visions and Reclaim the Block and Yes for Minneapolis have concluded, we don't need reform. It's not working. We need our people to stay alive. And so 
we're going to uh, we're proposing a radical shift. So the Department of Public Safety, as it's envisioned, the police department would be under it, and there would be a gradual reduction of the police department over years, as people more equipped to handle the vast majority of what people what police answer to now, people who are better equipped can answer to it. So this is an example of an idea that has come out of black and brown and indigenous communities, particularly as well as Latinx communities, of what can we do about the situation we have where our people are dying for so many reasons. And a huge, huge reason in urban U.S. cities is police. Let's go back to George Floyd that you were mentioning. Sure. Are you seeing evidence that the increased interest and awareness about racism um, that was brought about after his murder, are you you seeing that interest having a sustained impact? Well, George Floyd Square has been an occupied territory for a year and two months. The, the, The sadistic police murder of George Floyd took place on May 25th, 2020. Today is July 5th. And I answer the question that way because that is revolutionary. To have the location of this murder sanctified by people occupying it completely without cars until about a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, then the city, the city believed it was going to dismantle. George Floyd Square, and yeah, they, they literally, I think they are not going to be able to do it. So that's, that's um, pretty radical. But the reason is that, that Black women came in and said, you know, largely the, the core group, as I understand it, is, uh, it has been Black women have continued to develop that square as a place of breathing, a place of healing, and a place of power for all those months. So we were talking about surge. Yeah. Now let's talk about your work with training for change. You are a core trainer. What it, what does that mean? And, and what is the work that you do there? So well, training for change was started in early the early nineties by uh, another Quaker leader. I'm trying to think of what to call George, but uh, George Lakey, um, who was very much in leadership. You know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, he came out as gay in the early 70s, I think. That was a big thing for Quaker circles. Like, whoa, George Lakey is gay. But anyway, he's been a dedicated white uh, gay man, cis man, uh, revolutionary. And so he created Training for Change because of, well, kind of two particular, there were two particular reasons or focuses. One is he thought that the training that was going on in movements that depend a lot in, on, on training, on education, like union movements, the uh, domestic violence movement, uh, sexual assault movement, union, uh, well, workers' rights movement, whether union-related or not, he thought it was just not good. And that he had learned, he was also a co-founder of Movement for New Society, which developed, at least in, in, in raw form, many of the techniques that are now just standard. Uh, including like 
sharing an agenda before you start, um, having uh, a check-in go around, uh, acknowledging when there is conflict and when there is a power differential and lifting that up instead of trying to smush it down. So he said, uh, we need better uh, training and we need a better methodology. So uh, he, in a way that is really possible for him, synthesized a lot of the things that were happening in training right then and uh, came up with this methodology, which, which eventually we called direct education. The name of it is not as important as that it's experientially based. It believes that groups hold the wisdom that they need and a facilitator is a person who helps that, who supports that group to discover their own wisdom and act on it as powerfully as possible. And that learning, adult learning, takes place when people, when it's rooted in people's own experience, when they have a time to reflect on it, like, huh, okay, what did that mean to me? And from that reflection to what we call generalize, which what a lot of, I think, I've never been to college, but I think in college, they call it theory. Um, and, and not just in college, I mean, a lot of movement people make theory. Generalizing is, what do we know? because of the experiences we've just had or just uh, brought into the room, our reflection, how was that for me? How did I feel? What happened in me with that experience? That's a reflection level. The generalization level is when we combine people's reflections and experiences, we come up with learning that sticks and then we apply it. And so uh, at a certain point, let's see, George retired from being the director of Training for Change on 2006. And between then and now, all of us who have stayed involved have grown Training for Change into now a majority BIPOC staff, majority BIPOC trainer pool. There are nine of us. And the majority, this is crucial, the majority of the participants in our workshops are BIPOC. We have a commitment to developing Black trainers, Indigenous trainers, and trainers of color, because we believe so, so deeply that training is part of successful social movements. So that's what we do. So what that means for me when it's not pandemic time is, uh, or before pandemic time, I traveled a lot. We have a, we have two, a couple of weekend workshops that are sort of our flagship you know, here's, here's, here's your first immersion into this experiential approach to adult learning. Uh, we also have a weekend workshop called White People Confronting Racism. So I'm one of the one of a group of five trainers who do, do, do those. Related to your previous question about whether things are lasting, we in the starting in July, after the murder of George Floyd, so about a, a month and a half after it, we converted that weekend workshop, which had always been in person to online. And where we were doing it about three or four times a year. I personally have done 12 uh, since then of these full weekend workshops. Um, I think that number is at least about right. We're not doing one every month anymore, but the, uh, uh, the demand is, continues to be high. I can tell that all of this work, it really is the core of who you are. Yeah. Just by the look on your face and just... I can just tell in your voice. Thank you, Ellery. It's good to be seen and heard in this case. There's a lot of times where you weren't seen and heard, right? Yes. Yeah, there certainly were. And 
whatever pain or outcastness that that produced in my life is, of course, just some kind of minute sliver compared to what Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color in this country have endured. How crucial is this time? The uprising around racial justice, the climate emergency, and the destructive impacts of the Trump uh, presidency, I think make a perfect storm for masses of people to shake up and realize we got to be doing something fundamentally different. And some of those masses, of course, are also storming the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I mean, people are activating on a lot of levels. And it, it is my observation and my belief that people ultimately do have the power. And I, I know that the majority of people long long for justice, long for a healthy environment. People across so-called racial lines, which are artificial themselves, we long for each other. I trust that. Let's talk about dance. You had touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, Are you still involved with dance and theater work? (laughs) Well, I'm 67 last Friday. and. up until a week ago, almost 10 days ago, I would have said, nope, since age 40 till now, I, I pretty much have not done theatrical work. There's a group that meets in Powderhorn Park twice a week since the beginning of the pandemic because everybody was so like zoomed out, you know, and isolated and stuff. So we met in the park and we were socially distanced and we, uh, we, we call it outside voices. And we just have ways. I was not one of the founders, but I came in fairly early. And um, we just do various things that are silly or hilarious or deeply meaningful and scream and laugh and shout. Just um, let it out. Uh, we let it out. Exactly. Bingo, Ellery. E- exactly why. And so that's been great. And so the two people who did found it uh, are also theater artists in um in, uh, in town, Harry Waters Jr. and um, Katie uh, Blanchard. And so they are directing and co-directing this play called Queen Bee. So we were doing outside voices, you know, and they said, hey, we're having auditions for this play, you know, an hour after we're done here. And you want to audition? And I said, yeah, right. You want to take half my work off my lo- plate for the next months? And Harry said, well, you know, couldn't hurt to audition. And and my heart just had a little flutter when he said that. And I was like, that's true. It couldn't hurt to audition. And so I did and I aced it. And uh, I and, and I should have said right at the beginning, I'm just in the chorus. You know, there's just sort of a, a chorus that takes different roles and stuff. But I got in the chorus. And so um, the performances in Powderhorn will be, I think, the last week in August. And yeah, so it was just it was this little you know, at first I just thought, of course I can't do it. But I just kept having this quiver in my heart. You know, it's like, oh, I could be in front of an audience again. And so uh, this actually my colleagues in Surge 
I told them about it and I said, but I no way I can do it. And they said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we get some other people to do some of your surge work you're doing, you know, through August? And, you know, we'll, we still have the election in November 2nd. You'll be able to plunge right back in. No problem. So I'm meeting tomorrow night with several people who are going to take over my take over my work uh, at Surge. So thank you for asking and for <laughs> tolerating the the uh, the story. That's great. And you're so I can tell you're so excited about this upcoming I production. I know. Oh, my gosh. Erica, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful speaking with you. Mm, it's great speaking with you, Ellery. And I just want to give a shout out to anyone who's ever had any contact with FNBW. I love you. I always have. And AVP, the Alternatives of Violence Project. So it's a wonderful organization. I've been talking with Erica Thorne about her life's work as a social justice advocate. Be sure to check the program notes where you can find more information on the organizations and events that Erica refers to during our interview. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.